Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 18, The St. Albans Raid. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon on 19th October, 1864, a Southern Confederate officer named Bennett Young stood on a hotel porch on the main street in St. Albans, Vermont, pulled out a revolver, and shouted that he was taking possession of the town in the name of the Confederate States of America. At that very moment, 20 of his accomplices pulled out their own weapons and proceeded to wreak havoc on the town. About a dozen citizens who had the misfortune of doing their shopping on the main street were rounded up by Young at gunpoint and confined to the town square. Young's accomplices proceeded to three different banks and robbed them, as they said, in the name of the Confederacy. Young had shown up in town a couple of days earlier, claiming he was there from Montreal on a sporting expedition. Each day, more of his fellow supposed huntsmen showed up in town too. They inquired about the stock of weapons in town and the location of the best horses, all under the guise of being sportsmen. Really, they were planning their escape, how to avoid capture and to acquire horses on which to flee. At this very moment in Quebec, you'll recall, the leading statesmen of British North America were in the midst of heated debates about the composition of the upper chamber in the new confederation they proposed to create, and possibly recovering from hangovers after the the grand Friday night ball the evening before. The events in St. Albans would soon come to their attention, but not quite yet. Young and his confederates, all of whom wore plain clothes, not military uniforms, they were vastly outnumbered. They had to be about their business fast because news spread and other northerners, soldiers and militia came after them. Having acquired over 200,000 stolen dollars from the banks, the equivalent of about several million dollars today, the raiders hopped on their stolen horses and fled. By this point, Angry locals had heard of the attack and had grabbed their own weapons. The raiders had to shoot their way out of town. In the process, they killed one man. Ironically, their victim was known as the only southern sympathizer in St. Albans. Young and his men stopped long enough to try to buy themselves time by setting fire to parts of the town. They threw what was called Greek fire onto the wood, a concoction of naphtha, sulfur, quicklime, and water, and then set it to torch. This, however, didn't prevent a large troop of northern militia from setting out after the raiders. They were heading towards the border with Canada East, a distance of around 25 kilometers. The raiders managed to elude their followers and slink into the area across the border at the top end of Lake Champlain. After escaping into British North America, the raiders seemed to believe that they could now relax in the safety of British sovereignty but an international border wasn't stopping the northern militia who followed on horseback. They proceeded right across the boundary and kept up their hunt. International incident be damned. With the help of a local farmer who had given sustenance to the raider leader Young, the northerners rounded up several raiders, including Young himself. They then set upon him in a fit of anger and revenge. They were in the midst of beating him, perhaps to death, when a local British officer came upon the scene. He'd been alerted to the altercation and had set out to try to apprehend the raiders 
on behalf of Canadian authorities. Things could have turned nasty, for when the officer noted that the men were now all on neutral British territory and that any questions of justice would now be handled by British North American authorities, a Vermonter who got up in his face and sneered, we don't give a damn for your neutrality. Saner heads prevailed, however, and the Americans handed over their prisoners and retreated south of the border. It was only moments after they had handed over their prisoners that the Americans received notice of an order from General John A. Dix, commander of Union forces in the east. Dix was furious about the St. Albans raid, and his orders showed it. He had been at a dinner party, along with the British ambassador, no less, when he got word of the raid. Dix sent an order that his forces were to pursue the raiders even into British North American territory and bring them to justice. It was not the most diplomatic of orders and one that was bound to reverberate internationally if it had been followed. But as it was, the Canadians took possession of Young. They also had been busy rounding up the other raiders with a goal of bringing them to justice for violating the laws of British neutrality and for planning and carrying out acts of war while on British soil. The Governor-General Lord Monk had received a telegram at breakfast the next day on the 20th of October telling him of the raid. He quickly called together his Canadian ministers, who were all, of course, at Quebec for the conference, and proceeded with a plan of action. Georges Cartier was the Attorney General for Canada East, and he had a police magistrate, Charles Corsol, put in charge of the affair. There was a flurry of activity, and within a very short amount of time, the Canadians had rounded up most of the raiders and a substantial, though hardly complete, portion of the heist money. The raiders were first imprisoned in St. John, Canada East, but then moved to Montreal when it was decided that the trial should move further away from the volatile border region. The whole affair had stirred up intense anger in the northern states, and it was best to keep the raiders away from vigilantes who might sneak across the border and exact their own vengeance. The Americans had mobilized thousands of militia to man defenses at the border. In the initial haze of surprise and fury, it seemed to them as if the St. Albans raid might be the first of many, and they wanted to be ready. This is where things stood for over a month in a tense waiting pattern as lawyers on both sides prepared the case against and in defense of the Confederates. It's not as if British North Americans had nothing else to think about. The Quebec conference finished, the delegates passed their 72 resolutions, and then they had to act. This was supposed to be the main item on the agenda, the creation of this new nation uniting all of British North America. When the delegates left the conference, they planned to move swiftly. The whole project should, they thought, be completed within the year. Strike while the iron is hot. Almost immediately, the Canadians sent George Brown to England to begin talks with the British. Alexander Galt, the railway and financial wizard in the Canadian government, headed east to begin talks on the intercolonial railway in the maritime colonies. To put their plan into action, the statesmen of the 1860s decided that what they needed to do was pass the Quebec resolutions through each colony's parliament, show that this is what each colony desired, then the British government would pass a bill enacting the Confederation of British North America. 
Note here that they did not assume they needed to go directly to the people in a plebiscite or referendum. And sometimes this point is taken as an example of the elitism of the Confederation project. And certainly, if you hold yourself as a direct Democrat and assume that all major initiatives ought to be decided by a direct appeal to the people, then I think this argument has merit. But the British North Americans of the 1860s were decidedly not direct Democrats. They believed in parliamentary democracy, in responsible government. The lifeblood of politics lay in the parliaments occupied by the people's representatives. Members from all parties, except, importantly in the Canadian case, the Rouge, had attended the meetings at Quebec, opposition and government. Now, if these same colonial parliaments passed the resolutions, this would show popular support for the deal, or that was the plan anyway. The cracks in the edifice emerged relatively quickly after Quebec. We'll come back to the aftermath of St. Albans in a moment. For now, let's just focus on the reaction to the Quebec scheme and the plan to unite British North America. The public got its first look at the scheme in early to mid-November, when first one paper, and then soon most papers across the colonies, published the full text of the deal. Up until now, British North Americans had only heard rumors or listened to the speeches of themes and rhetoric. Here were all of the 72 resolutions in full. What did the public make of the scheme? There is, of course, no simple answer to this question, no single consensus, but we can sketch various outlines. In Upper Canada, on both the conservative and reform side, the newspapers largely seemed content, if somewhat nervous. Finally, they would receive representation by population, a position which, by this point, had been accepted by almost everyone. And here it was in black and white. Canada East would get its current 65 seats, and there was Upper Canada with 83. What was not to like? This was the final victory, the, the freedom from French domination, as George Brown had so often put it. On the conservative side, Macdonald's followers saw wisdom and ambition in the plan, but there was some nervousness too about the, the fate of a conservative party that had so long dominated politics by its alliances with the bleu of Lower Canada and whether that would now be ruined. On a more principled footing, some worried about the, the federal structure, wishing for a legislative union and not a confederation, and the fear of disunity and maybe even disloyalty of this American-seeming plan. But most put aside these worries for now, at least. John A. Macdonald wrote to one loyalist trying to assuage his worries about decentralization. MacDonald was certain that he had helped create a powerful central government at Quebec, not a weak federation. MacDonald wrote that his correspondent would, in his own lifetime, see, quote, both local parliaments and governments absorbed in the general power. This is as plain to me, MacDonald said, as if I saw it accomplished now. Of course, he went on, it does not do to adopt that point of view in discussing the subject in Lower Canada. Yeah, you can say that again. This was definitely not Georges Cartier's view. For those in Lower Canada, the federal nature of the deal mattered more than anything else. Would the Quebec resolutions lead to a new nation with a powerful national government and a subservient local government? 
Or would the local government be fully sovereign in its own areas? Depending on whom you asked, you receive different answers and different levels of anxiety. The most prominent critic of the deal in Lower Canada was the Rouge leader, Dorian. This was George Brown's old ally, but now Brown had gone and entered government with Cartier and the Bleu instead, at least to get Confederation done. Dorian published an influential letter on November 7th, explaining why he believed the Quebec deal would be a disaster for French Canada. Dorian disliked much about the deal, thinking it would just add unnecessary debt and expenditure without much new in the way of commerce and revenue. Dorian was a a 19th century liberal, and these financial considerations always mattered. But mostly, Dorian fretted about French Canada and what it could lose in the deal. Certainly, the existing union with Upper Canada wasn't perfect. What, though, did Lower Canada get out of the Quebec scheme? Supposedly, it would get its own government with control over its own affairs. As Dorian went down the list of powers of the general government, though, What he saw frightened him. The general government would have too much power, too much say over matters that ought, rightly, to be in the hands of French Canadians themselves. The appointment of judges or control over the criminal law, for example. There would still be conflict at the national level, but now French Canadians would be even more outnumbered than in the current union. How, he asked, could you really claim that the provincial governments will be sovereign when the general government was granted ultimate sovereignty over everything, the reserve power, and the power of disallowance? What kind of federalism was this? His answer? Not any kind at all. As he put it, and excuse my bad translation of his French, quote, This isn't a confederation that we are offered, but rather a legislative union in disguise. One that gives to each province the simulacra of a responsible government without any real power, because real power is in the hands of the general government. So, yeah, Dorian was not impressed. In Lower Canada, though, Dorian and the Rouge were equally matched and probably overmatched by the many Bleu ministers and supporters who offered a very different interpretation of what they had achieved at Quebec. For Cartier, Langevin, and others, the deal at Quebec offered French Canadians control over the aspects of government that mattered. On each of the areas over which they fought, control over education and religious institutions, their unique civil law, the local government would be sovereign. And as to the whole matter of disallowance by the federal government, lower Canadians would have their ministers in the national government. The power might exist, but it would not be used, or so they claimed anyway. This is where things stood for French Canadians. However, for the small but powerful group of British lower Canadians, the Quebec scheme also potentially represented a death knell They fared relatively well in the current union and could ally with the upper Canadians to protect their interests. However, in a federal structure with strong powers provided to the local government, how would they fare as a distinct minority? This was an open question. Their key man in cabinet, though, Alexander Galt, soothed these fears. In sharp contrast to Cartier, and 
it has to be said, pretty much in agreement with Dorian, Galt suggested that the lower Canadian British need not worry about this federalism business. In reality, the general government would be taking over the most important powers from the current colonial governments. This is where the real power would lie. The local governments would be not much more than municipalities. And if you happen to be saying to yourself now, hey, isn't this all more than a little bit contradictory? Yes, you are right. The coalition government spoke out of both sides of its mouth, depending on which language it was speaking and to which audience it was speaking. Partly this is because within that government, different figures believed or hoped that the Quebec scheme meant different things, more and less centralized, a strong federation or a weak federation. They would go on believing these things and making these contradictory statements right on through the whole process. Okay, the Quebec scheme fared much worse in the Maritimes. On Prince Edward Island, the, the governor reported late in the year of 1864 that it seemed almost no one wanted confederation. This perhaps is not entirely surprising given the actions of the PEI delegates at Quebec and the way that the others had shut down PEI's wish for more influence, and especially because the conference had not come up with any special funding to deal with the landlord issue. On Newfoundland, the two delegates who had returned with plenty of enthusiasm, but they only found that the local government wasn't much bothered by the whole scheme. As November turned into December, the government didn't think the scheme even needed to be brought forward for debate. Had Quebec offered some news on the French shore controversy? No, it had not. So why bother? In Nova Scotia, Governor McDowell reported back to London that many leading members of society were coming out against the scheme. There was a burbling of discontent and everyone wondered what old Joseph Howe would say. He was now back in the colony. How would Howe react to the deal this re his reform friends had signed on to? Well, we'll find out about that next week. But it was New Brunswick that tipped the scales most against the deal. New Brunswick was absolutely essential to Confederation. With New Brunswick in, the Canadians could at least gain an eastern ice-free seaport. Yet Leonard Tilley's government was due to go to the polls by mid-year of 1865. This wasn't a surprise, but on his return, Tilley nonetheless had to answer a key question. Should he pass the Quebec resolutions now, before an election? Or should he call an election and ask the electorate to give him a mandate to return to power and pass the Confederation scheme? Now, you know what the Canadians thought. Pass the damn resolutions and let the election take care of itself. However, things weren't so easy. In the aftermath of the conference, public meetings had been held to discuss Confederation all over the British North America and in New Brunswick in particular and the meetings were boisterous affairs. Tilly's old colleague, but now his rival, A.J. Smith, had taken a stand against Confederation. It would cost too much, he said, and bring New Brunswickers Canadian problems. The intercolonial railway wasn't worth it. New Brunswickers should instead look to a railway venture that linked the colony up with the United States, a so-called Western Extension. Few historians believe that Smith was principled in his stand, 
Politics in New Brunswick so often depended on personalities and patronage. Smith, some say, saw in the Confederation issue a way to get himself back into power, and he jumped. And then there was Arthur Gordon, the governor who had really wanted a maritime union, his own scheme, and not this British North American union that had been foisted upon him. So he couldn't be counted on for advice friendly to Confederation. In the end, Tilly decided to do what he saw as the honorable thing. He wouldn't push the Quebec resolutions through the legislature. New Brunswickers would head to the polls in the winter of 1865, and the fate of the whole deal would rest on the cold, snowy vote. In the meantime, though, a magistrate in Canada East decided that what everyone needed was another war scare. Justice Corsall, the man in charge of the trial of the St. Albans Raiders, listened to arguments from the defense in his Montreal courtroom, and he found himself increasingly convinced by the technical jurisdictional arguments the defense put forward. Reports leaked out to the American papers about lenient treatment afforded to the St. Albans Raiders in their so-called prison. The raiders were allowed to stay in the jailer's own personal home, the papers claimed. And they were well cared for by a Confederate official in Canada. He kept them well supplied with fine wines at dinner and even allegedly paid for feminine company in the evening, at least for those who wanted it. The Americans were only going to get angrier. The raiders' lawyer argued that his clients could not actually be tried in this particular court. The police magistrate did not, he argued, have jurisdiction. Now, the exact details don't matter here. What does matter is that quite suddenly, one day during the trial, Justice Corsall ruled in favor of the defendants on these jurisdictional grounds, ending the trial abruptly. Quite suddenly, with no fanfare and no attempt to prevent their departure, he allowed the raiders to leave his courtroom as free men. The union lawyers rushed to get warrants for the men's arrest, but they were too late. The raiders rushed to a nearby bank where their stolen funds had been kept. It had already somehow been arranged that the money would be handed out to them via a back door. Within an hour, the St. Albans raiders had fled Montreal. To say that this pissed off the Americans would be an understatement. General Dix was furious, and he immediately issued an order to apprehend the raiders, even if it meant trespassing on British North American soil. This wasn't going to calm things down. That very day, Congress passed a resolution announcing it would not renew the reciprocity treaty between the United States and the British colonies that was set to expire the following year. On top of this, the American Secretary of State gave a six-month notice that they would be ending the Rush-Bagot Agreement, the treaty which demilitarized the American-Canadian border and waterways. American papers threatened war. The New York Times announced that the raiders should be captured, no matter the niceties. The Canadian border ought not to matter more than the border with South Carolina or Virginia. If this meant war, well, the Times said, If it must come, let it come, not ours the guilt. We were never in a better condition for war with England. 
So, yeah, fighting words. The Canadians and the British were, of course, more than a little upset at Justice Corsall's decision. Lord Monk's sister-in-law, the, a very opinionated and very aristocratic Francis Monk, talked about how Lord Monk had received the telegram about, as she put it, that stupid judge. According to Feo Monk, though the fuss was such fun, hardly the way the governor himself would have put it. Orders went out to immediately rearrest the prisoners. Lord Monk ordered the militia out to man the border. More than anything, what they wanted to do was to prevent any more Confederate raiders from attacking America from British soil. This is the time when Johnny MacDonald and Georges-Etienne Cartier created Canada's first secret police, a network of detectives that operated inside and outside Canada, trying to detect Confederate plans before they could be hatched. We'll talk more about the Secret Service in the future as they played a big role in the Fenian Scare. But at its origin, the Secret Service was created to prevent attacks on America, not on Canada. The government immediately took action to assuage American fears in other ways too. In January of 1865, they reconvened Parliament. And even before turning to any discussion of Confederation, they passed a new Alien Act, setting harsh fines and punishment for anyone conducting attacks on friendly neighbours from Canadian soil. As British North Americans then looked forward to 1865, the year that would see an end to the American Civil War, a year that was supposed to see the passage of the Quebec Resolutions and the creation of a new country uniting the British North American colonies, they faced a great deal of uncertainty. They guarded against possible Confederate attacks from Canadian soil. They looked to a New Brunswick election where the Quebec resolutions would be on the ballot. And they wondered if all the plans of 1864, the dreams inspired amidst the champagne and oysters, would come crashing down amidst the uncertainty of the new year. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. Next week, we're going to catch up with uh, my favorite itinerant Nova Scotian, Joseph Howe. The man who had so dominated Nova Scotian politics didn't go to Charlottetown or Quebec. He wasn't part of the whole champagne dinner circuit of British American bliss. We'll check out where he has been and watch what happens when he comes back to the political scene. Howe's old enemies and even his friends were planning to pass a deal to make a confederation. But for Howe, it wasn't so much a confederation as it was a botheration. And he wasn't a man to hold his tongue for long. Okay, I, I said next week, but in fact, over the month of August, I'm going to officially move to a two-week rotation with new episodes coming out every other week. There are just too many holidays I have planned before the new school year. But we'll still be moving on our way uh, and find ourselves completing the Confederation Project uh, in September. If you like what you're hearing, please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It's one great way to help others find the show. And if you, if you really, really like the show, consider becoming a patron for $5 a month. You can help us keep 1867 and all that online in perpetuity. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that 
1867, and all that. <laughs>